Well, again, Merry Christmas. I thought I would take some time this morning and give a hypothetical situation, a what-if scenario. And you are familiar with what-if scenarios. You've probably, in your mind at least, uh, gone through a number of what-if scenarios. I can think of a few that would be amazing what-if scenarios. What if Lee had won at Gettysburg? What if Booth had missed Lincoln? But I think the most important one would be the one that's before us this morning. What if Jesus had never been born? What are the implications? And they're massive. If Jesus had never been born, the story we read never took place. I want want us to answer that question this morning and kind of come at it from a different angle. I've been preaching for about 30 years. This is about 30 Christmases. Uh, You're always looking for a different angle, the way to turn the diamond and see a different vista about Christmas. And so I thought I would come at it very differently uh, this morning in hopes to encourage you and to increase your your gratitude. We're going to kind of wander through the scriptures this morning in hopes of bringing wonder and gratitude for the Incarnation. I want to begin by giving you an overview of Christ's life. It's baseline. It sets the tone for our topic this morning. I've entitled this baseline, just the piece of it, Jesus, a man without peer. I want to remind you, as we look at the whole of Christ's life, some interesting facets. Here we go. Here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another remote village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then, for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. That's what we're studying in the book of Mark together, those three years. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. Listen to this. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of those things that usually accompany greatness in earthly standards. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends, as you know, ran away, and his closest friend denied him. He was turned over, actually, to his enemies. He went through mockery and the mockery of a trial. He was brutally nailed upon a cross between two thieves, and while he was dying, his executioners simply gambled the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the sheer pity of a friend. Now, 19 centuries have come and gone, yet today he is the centerpiece of the human race, And in the leader column, the leader of progress, I am this morning far within the mark when I say that all the armies 
that ever marched, all the knaves that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of a man upon this earth as powerfully as his one solitary life. Jesus this morning is without peer. That is simply an overview of his entire humble life. What if, though, for our consideration this morning, what if Jesus had never been born? There was no first Christmas. I want to begin first and look at it from two angles. The theological implications, which are both earthly or here and now, and eternal. And then I want to look at it from a common grace angle. And the implications are, are just massive. So first, I want to give you the top eight. There are many, 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 many implications. But these are the theolo theological implications, the top eight that I could think of if Jesus was not born. What if Jesus did not become a man? First implication. We would not know what God is like. What do you mean? Well, Isaiah 9, 6 states he is God with us. So if you see Jesus, you see what God is like, right? John 14, 9. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The only way you would know what God is like is because the Son, right? The Son reflects the Father, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. So you wouldn't even know what God is like if Jesus had not been born. Number two, there would be no forgiveness of sins. This is huge. This is the purpose of Christmas, that God reconciles sinners to himself. And as 1 Corinthians 15, 19 states, we would be of all men most pitied. But if there, listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, and not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses, liars, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Though, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished, all our forefathers. Verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Our sins would not be forgiven. Third, we would have no advocate with the Father. Jesus stands as our advocate with the Father, making advocacy for us. Even now, presently, we'd have no advocate with the Father. The sting of death, more in 1 Corinthians 15, this in verse 56, the sting of death would be present. You'd have no hope, right? The sting of death is present, no victory over death. It would just be living this life and then finito. Five, you'd have no hope in heaven as demonstrated in Revelation 20 and 21. Six, 
You'd have no exemplary life. It is important to understand that Jesus had to live an exemplary life. He lived 33 and a half years on this earth to demonstrate for us what a life that follows Christ looks like. You'd have no example. We'd only have flawed human examples. He was the perfect example. He lived life perfectly without sin. Number seven, we'd have no exchange in righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We would not have Christ's righteousness applied to our sinful count and our sins applied to his righteousness. There would be no great exchange ever taking place and we'd stand before God without an advocate, without a substitute. And number eight, you'd have no sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4 talks about the fact that he's a sympathetic high priest, that he, he relates to our struggles and our sufferings in this life. He relates to a messy 2018. He gets it. So when you go to pray, you have a sympathetic high priest who says, I've been there. I've walked on this planet. I've, I've felt the sting and, and pain of this life. You would have no sympathetic high priest. Now, there are tons of implications. These are just eight. There are eight big ones. They're probably the top eight in my mind. And if there was a top one, if there was a number one slot, it would be no forgiveness of sins. You would remain in your sins. You could not have access to the Father. You could not have access to eternity, to heaven. And upon your last breath, you'd be ushered into hell. Those are the theological implications or grace effects if Jesus was not born. Then there's this category in theology called common grace. What is common grace? Common grace means it's grace applied to everyone, the just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. It affects everyone. When it rains, nobody's excluded out of that, right? Everyone in the human race, no distinction, one person from another. These are common grace implications if Jesus had not been born. And the premise here is this. Everything that Jesus ever touched in his earthly life, from his incarnation and birth forward, he transformed. And I want you to see it because it should bring tremendous gratitude to you. Christ changed the entire world from a remote city of Nazareth, from the calendar to holidays, to the moral fiber of this world. Take our Christmas celebration in two days. He had an, a birthday and altered the way we measure time and the way we measure our calendar. A.D., after his death. So we need to look at the effects of Christ's birth on the world when it comes to common grace, right? The incarnation of the Son of God, it was a radical event. It transformed everything, and it's important to see that. And it was foretold thousands of years before. This is why David leaves his city and goes up to Bethlehem. He had to be from the family of David. All these things line up, these prophecies line up to show us that this is the Son of God being born in that manger. Let's start 
with a few secular thoughts about the impact of Christ's birth. This is from H.G. Wells. I'm a historian. He says, I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. H.G. Wells. Philip Schaff. No great life ever passed so swiftly, so quietly, so humbly, so far removed from the noise and commotion of the world. And no great life after it closed excited such universal and lasting interest. This is outside of the Rockefeller Center in New York City on a plaque. Man's ultimate destiny depends not on whether he can learn new lessons or make new discoveries and conquests, but on the acceptance of the lesson taught him close, taught him close upon 2,000 years ago. That lesson being Jesus Christ. Jesus is the dominant figure in human history. His incarnation changed everything. But let's look at common grace implications. What if Jesus had never been born? Years ago, I, I heard a sermon by the Presbyterian James D. Kennedy on this topic around Christmas what if Jesus had never been born? First implication in common grace. You have to know that Christ, when he came, changed our social conscience. Prior to the coming of Christ, human life on this planet was dark, flat, cheap. It was not good. That manifests itself in a number of places. Let me give you some examples. First. He elevated the role of women. Jesus did. In the ancient world, women were viewed as the property of their husbands. Aristotle said that a woman was somewhere between a free man and a slave. Plato thought if a man lived a cowardly life, he would reincarnate as a woman. Little girls were far more susceptible to being abandoned especially if there was any form of deformity, than boys. Clearly, women in social strata had an inferior position. But you know from Genesis that God said he made male and female. Although different in function, I think we can all agree to that biblically, equal in essence, right? We both bear the image of God and there should be that, that equal in essence, that equality. So when Jesus came, it was a matter of tipping the scales. Jesus, by example, would violate women taboo in the first century. For example, the Samaritan woman at the well. He approached her, he talked to her. That would have never happened. He cast out demons in women. He spoke publicly with the widow of Nain. He allowed himself to be, remember, anointed by a woman. And women were the first to know of his resurrection. I'm telling you, that was all intentional. He changed the social strata by his presence. If we, if we 
had not experienced the birth of Christ, who knows where we would be? Second, under this category of social change, he elevated the role of children. Both child sacrifice and abandonment were really a horrendous reality and quite normal. The archaeologist, archaeologist Spade has unearthed entire cemeteries near temples where children were sacrificed. Infanticide, the killing of children, was just frankly common. Especially if they were deformed or infirmed or had some disability. Literally, they would be left to die in the Gehenna, in the, the trash heaps. Unwanted children were a commodity to be exploited. Only one half of the children born lived past eight years old. We see a reflection of that in Herod's pronouncement and census of the children, right? You see that it was, it was tough being a child. Yet Jesus changed all that. Jesus loved the children. You remember Matthew 18 when there was a dispute between the disciples. And uh, they, didn't, they didn't know who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. What does he do? He grabs a little child. And it brings him and says, if you can't become like this little child, you won't have any part of my kingdom. So he elevated little children. Matthew 18, 1 to 6. He healed children. He cast demons out of children. He taught children. He invited children to himself. He touched them. He held them. He loved them. He was warm towards them. Jesus himself had been born to a single mother in poverty and then adopted by Joseph. So the early church, because of Christ, fought vigorously against the evil ways of thinking about children. And that was because of the influence of Christ. Today, we even fight here in the West, really all over the world, for rights of unborn children, right? Why? Because of the birth of Christ. Christ said children are born in the image of God, and it matters so take the social injustice, the social strata with women and children and how Jesus changed both of those by his birth. Could you imagine what we would be like if Jesus had not been born? Second, he elevated justice and the economic system, the difference between right and wrong. In America, take our own precious country, the Declaration of Independence was influenced by Christ and the scriptures. The Bible teaches the value of private property, right? In the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 25, it forbids stealing another person's private property, implies ownership of personal property. Private property is fundamental to capitalism, right? It's the pillar of our entire economic system here in the West. Jesus also promoted strong work ethic. From the beginning, Genesis 1-3, that we as men and women would work by the sweat of our brow. The Bible teaches that all work is sacred, not what just I do in the ministry and what I do up here is sacred. All of your work is sacred. It doesn't matter what you do. Every ounce of your energy in this world, Jesus said, is sacred. It's a calling. It is to be done for the glory of God. Jesus said, are you not more value of value than the sparrows? 
He certainly distinguished man from our animals. And our culture right now is really having a difficult time with this issue with pets. I mean, I, it's crazy walking around seeing people pushing their pets in a buggy. And, and I, it's just beyond comprehension. Sanctity of life always trumps quality of life. Jesus made that case. So the morality of any society can be judged by how they view human life. The sanctity of human life. That's because of Jesus. If he had not been born, the systems that we appreciate and assume upon are really rooted and founded in Christ. Next category. Christ changed how we care for others. The church cares about poverty. Proverbs 14, 21. Happy is he who is gracious to the poor. The church cares about all kinds of suffering. And I mean all kinds of suffering, but especially eternal suffering. That is our first priority. Jesus promoted in the Sermon on the Mount his best and brightest sermon. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Certainly he demonstrated mercy on the cross. His ultimate act of mercy was on the cross. Since we have experienced Christ's mercy, we are to be merciful people. That's because of Jesus' birth. We care about the homeless, the needy, the sick, the poor, the abused, the elderly. The Good Samaritan is case in point. Just read that story. But think about it in history. In these last 1900 plus years, hospitals in the Middle Ages were born out of Christian charity, right? Born out of the gospel. Most parachurch ministries that exist today that you just assume were born out of Christian charity because of Christ's birth and Christ's philosophy. George Mueller started orphanages. The YMCA, founded in 1844. You know what the YMCA stands for? Young Man's Christian Association. The Salvation Army in 1887. All of these massive organizations that we see at Christmas time all are rooted and grounded in Christ, in the birth of Christ. All of the third world orphanages, all the inner city rescue missions, all the express are the expressions of Christians showing charity. Being a fully devoted follower of Christ means you care about vulnerable people, right? We care about people's physical needs. We care about the downcast. Why? Because Christ did. He lived in his 33 years an exemplary life. And we emulate Christ. A world without Christ is a world without charity. Jesus put charity on the map. People just didn't care about other people. They were full of themselves. They're coming out of 400 years of darkness. Nothing had been spoken by the prophets. They were left in their ways. And it was not pretty in the first century. When Jesus entered at the perfect time, the right time, Acts 4 says, at the perfect time, it was the right time to transform all these things. Everything he touched, he transformed. I'll give you another category, education. Christ changed how we perceive and do education. Certainly, it was always true in Deuteronomy 6, right? That the families are our first priority in discipling their children. 
that's where the burden lies. It'll always be that case. And the church is merely supplemental to that. But Jesus put education on the map. Remember what he was called? Teacher. Teacher. Prior to Christ, education was for the elite. And that's why having a Bible, we'll get to that in a second in this education piece, the Reformation, but you wouldn't have your own copy of the scriptures. You, if you've ever seen a Torah scroll, they're massive. You, you, you wouldn't be able to afford one. It would only be the very elite. You would come to worship. You'd come to the temple and look at Torah. Um, you would come even in the first century when scripture was read out loud, but you wouldn't have a copy of it. It was just for the elite. And think about this. Even of, of recent, we see a lot of books because there's the making of books. There's no end. And we've got Amazon. We've got all these things. But even Jonathan Edwards, the great Western mind, which I brought to your attention to in, in July, in his library, 280 books total. His whole life, 280 books. Not the ones he wrote, just that he had access to. As a matter of fact, if he went over to your house and had dinner in the communities he lived and he saw a book, he would ask to borrow it and never return them. He like stole them. That's one of the funny features of him. They all knew in town, don't let him have a book because he'll never return a book. They were such a prized commodity. We see literacy, literacy, literacy skyrocketed in the first century. Education grew in the first century. But it was really put on the map in the Reformation. I don't know if you know this, but it was Luther and Calvin that fought for education. The reason you have compulsory education, that your kids have to be in school by law, the reason they have to be in school, whether it's homeschool, public school, whatever school it is, the reason is Calvin and Luther. The first compulsory education school at Calvin's Cathedral is right beside it. Calvin College is sitting right there. Before then, you would just grow up in an agrarian culture and you'd be a farmer and you'd do what your daddy did. And there was great discipleship in that. We missed that piece of it, but that's just the way it was. Education wasn't for everyone. The reformers said, no, no. You need access to the word of God. You need education. It's a byproduct of the reformation is that you go to school. The reason why my boys are in school are because of Calvin and Luther, because of the Christian faith, which you could trace all the way back to Jesus. People are now accountable to learn because of Jesus. Missionaries were being flung all over the world, and they were doing what? Like Wycliffe, they were translating the Bible into native languages. They were codifying language so that people could have access to the Word of God. <clears throat> the printing press, a product of the Reformation, was Johannes Gutenberg. And the first thing he printed on the first printing press that ever existed was what? The Scriptures. He printed them for the Scriptures. Martin Luther said, I'll translate, you print. And that was the, that was the, the catalyzer, that was like the... The fuel to the fire of the Reformation. Reformation was this Gutenberg who was not a Christian who just said he was taking advantage of small business in a printing press. Common people needed access to the word of God. That was Luther. That every plowboy, he said, needed access to the word of God. It wasn't just for the elite or just for the pastors on Sunday morning, but they wanted you to have a copy of it in your hands so that when I'm studying the text, when I'm reading Luke 2, you're reading Luke 2 with me. And if I say something that's hogwash, 
you know it. And the Puritans landed in the Americas. They came with a passion for two things. Literacy and education. Why? Because of Christ. Listen to this. The first 123 American colleges and universities had their Christian origins. All of them. Yale, Cambridge, Harvard, William and Brown, Princeton, Dartmouth, NYU, Northwestern. All those basketball games you walked, watch on Saturday like I did. You know where they were rooted in? Christian. They were places to train pastors and, and spiritual leaders. So from, listen to this, from 1620 to 1837, virtually all education was distinctively Christian. Jesus gave us a passion to excel at education. Had Christ not been born, we'd be abiding in our sin and in the darkness of ignorance, we'd still be ignorant. It was his birth that brought us all of this. Fourth, Christ changed the leadership paradigm. He turned leadership on its head. We see that in the condescension, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, that though he was God, yet he temporarily set aside his divine attributes so that he could become a man. He humbled himself. Everything about his birth, everything about his life, only 200 miles from his hometown he ever went. Humility over arrogance. He prized humility. He modeled humility. Humility is king. And when the last thing he had to say while on this planet, the night before he was crucified, he gathered his disciples together, brought them in real close, and gave them a final lesson. And when they walked into that room, in the upper room, he washed their feet. No rabbi, no teacher would ever do that. And he said, no, if you're going to be in my kingdom, you're going to be one of my followers, then you'll do it humbly. You'll be a servant leader, not just a leader. You won't rule with the pen or rule with the sword. You'll rule with a towel and basin. And so he changed leadership. He turned leadership on its head. We don't climb ladders. We humble ourselves. Like John the Baptist, we must decrease. He must increase. Right? It's all about you want to be first, then be last. You want to be a great leader, then be humble. Christ emptied himself. Why? In order to fill us up. He modeled that. He, he put that on the map. He demonstrated, as you see in the kenosis in Philippians 2, <clears throat> 5 through 11. Fifth, Christ changed our lives. He moved from ordinary means of grace to special grace or saving grace. Matthew 121 states that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was born to die. He was to, as we sang, as Troy led us, we are to reconcile sinners. He saves us from our sins. He saved us from ourselves. If he had not been born, you would remain in your sins. And sin would just blossom and flourish and consume. As a matter of fact, he specializes in saving the hard cases, right? He specializes in changing lives. Case in point, you get into the book of Acts and you have the guy who's murdering Christians 
and he makes him an apostle, Paul. Saul of Tarsus was known for killing followers of Christ. And he becomes a Christian. More than just a Christian, he becomes the pastor. <laughs> Crazy. A woman with seven demons. Tax collectors. We've seen this in Mark 2. Drunks. Liars. The gathering demoniac. <coughs> it's incredible. Incredible. Slave traders like John Newton. Headhunters. Cannibals. Drug dealers. Jim Elliott, when they landed on the beach, and the Aka Indians. Old tribe gets converted. He gave his life on that beach. But in turn, those that took his life, which I have actually met and had a meal with, are now saved. Drug dealers, you name it. No one is too lost for Christ. He came, as Mark says, and you know it well from our previous controversy study, he came for the spiritual sick, not for the whole. The church is never a hotel for saints. It's a hospital. It's a hospital for sinners. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. He died on the cross. To accomplish this, he accomplished our, our redemption in 2 Corinthians 5.21, really we can look at before then, 2 Corinthians 5.17 states, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ Reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. <clears throat> and then there's 521. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That first Christmas, the, the church fathers said this, Christ became what he was not in order that we might become what we are not. That's that exchange. He took our sin on his precious life and gave us his righteousness to our sin and imputed that, that's imputation, imputed it to it, forensically gave it to us. Not based on anything you could ever do, right? And we get a new beginning. He transforms us. He makes us new. He saves us by his grace. And we become new creations. And he takes up the, the stony heart of flesh. Again, I say, as I said in the beginning, Jesus is without peer. Everything, and I mean everything he touched, he transformed. And if Jesus had not been born, theologically, we would remain in our sins and be pitied and have no hope and no joy and no celebration like we're going to have in the next few days. And then all these other common grace things, education, social strata, common grace, caring for poor, the vulnerable, the sick, the hurting, saving people from their sins. 
This is all the ministry of Jesus. Had he not been born, none of it would exist today. He is without peer. And there I want to remind you, he never wrote a book. But in the Library of Congress, it holds more books about Jesus than any other historical figure. The next closest is Shakespeare, and it's a far cry. He was not an artist. But more artwork has been commissioned of him than anyone else who has ever lived. So more books, more art, and he is this humble, lived in obscurity. They said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's Jesus, right? We've seen the implications. If Jesus would not have been born, we would be in a mess, a hot mess today. How about some application this morning? We've seen the implications. How about some application? It would be terrible for me as your pastor to think that you'd miss Christmas, or at least the meaning of Christmas. All through the centuries, people have missed Christmas. Let me give you some examples from the first Christmas, and then we'll end with our own lives. There are many people in the first century who missed Christmas, that first Christmas. But three in particular stand out. The innkeeper, King Herod, and the religious elite that we have been studying. And Mark also mentioned in Matthew 2, 4-6. The people who missed Jesus, King Herod because of his pride, the innkeeper because he was distracted, and the religious leaders because they were indifferent. Let's deal with each of them. Each one, little of those three categories, just quickly. First, the innkeeper. Actually, there's no mention of an innkeeper in the scriptures. If you've done any reading about Christmas, the innkeeper's not mentioned. As you read in Luke 2, there seems to be an inn or something of, li- of that nature. It's actually the same word that was used for the upper room. It's probably more of a room. Kind of think of bed and breakfast. So everybody's coming. It's not that he was being mean. It's just the town was full of people because of census time. It was just, it was just the, everybody had to register. Everybody had to be there. So everybody was coming in town and there was no room. They were probably late to arrive and there was no room for them uh, to stay. But certainly it implies that there's some innkeeper. Somebody turned them away. Somebody said, no, you can go over here or go over there. But somebody turned away this young mother about to give birth to the savior of the world. Why? Because it was crazy. They were full. They were at 100% occupancy. It aptly applies today, does it not? There's no room for Jesus in our holidays, it seems. Right? We get distracted with all those things. And a lot of it's good, right, and beautiful, and fun. And it should be true. But we can get distracted. And you don't want to find yourself missing Christmas. Every year, you've got to constantly fight for the true meaning of Christmas. Not in a weird way, not in a creepy way. You don't give no presents out and, you know, give your kids, you know, apples with razor blades in it just to teach them a lesson. Just don't be stupid, right? Like, we're not weird, right? Alone, Mary gives birth to this first child. No midwife present, puts him in a feed trough in a stable. Many miss the first Christmas. The innkeeper would probably be among them. Second, King Herod. He is mentioned in Scripture. 
And uh, it's a mess. As you know from Matthew 2, 1 to 8, he clearly missed Christmas, not because he was indifferent or ignorant. It's because he was arrogant. Listen to this. I want you to see the second narrative that the Gospels contain. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem on Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Right there is where the offense came in. Why? It is known that Herod called himself king of the Jews. Now he's got a competitor. For he saw his star in the east and have come to, we have saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests, all the scribes, there's those religious people we've been studying about. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, how would they know that? Because they were scribes and Pharisees. They knew the law. They knew what the prophets had said. It was foretold. That was a fact. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall, be, shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then, listen to this, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report it to me so that I too may come and worship him, which was a total lie. He wanted to destroy him. Not ignorant. He was arrogant. He pretends like he wants to worship Jesus. The king of the Jews, this new king, was going to be a threat to him. He was ruthless and paranoid. And what did he do? He puts out an edict that every child in Bethlehem under two years old was to be killed. You see that in Matthew 2, 16 to 18. It was brutal. He was jealous. He was ungodly. No way he would submit to the Lord Jesus. So he missed Christmas. He was king. There was no competitor, no other king. Yet today, people still refuse to bend the knee to King Jesus. He is king. He is Lord of the universe. He is the sovereign Lord of this universe. And people still refuse to bow their knee except for Philippians chapter 2, verses 10, 11 state that one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So Herod has this perfect opportunity to usher in the Messiah, to get all the credit for that, but he misses Christmas. He misses the first Christmas. He's out. Why? Arrogance. Third category, the religious leaders. Matthew 2, 4 to 6, reference them. They gathered together the chief priests and the scribes and all the people inquired of them and the Messiah to be born. So here's the religious leaders, and they miss Jesus. Here's why. <clears throat> they knew him technically. They didn't know him personally. Head knowledge. Head knowledge can trip you up. It really can. They didn't know him personally. They quoted even Micah 5 too. They even knew where he was going to come from. Yet they missed the Messiah. Since Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15 that Jesus was going to come. Jesus comes and they still miss it. They've been teaching this for centuries. They had John the Baptist preparing the way. Who said, there's one coming greater than me, whose sandals I cannot tie. 
They couldn't imagine why. They couldn't imagine in their religiosity, they couldn't imagine anything good coming out of Bethlehem, which is just a few miles south of their location. The blinding effects of self-righteousness will keep you from enjoying Christmas. They didn't feel like they had to have their sin covered. They were religious, right? They were checking the box. They were keeping all the 412 laws that they had created. <clears throat> but Jesus said in Matthew 9, 13, as well as Mark 2, he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. They thought they were good enough. They didn't think they needed special grace or any grace. They thought because they held the role, they held the position, they looked the part, that they were certainly in the club, and they were not. And so they missed Christmas. So the innkeeper, we're giving some examples. There's lots of people. Innkeeper, King Herod, the religious leaders. The question is this morning as we wrap up, will you miss Christmas? I think you have to fight for it every year. And I want you to appreciate Christmas in all of its flavors, all of its beauty. But don't miss that Jesus came in obscurity. He came humbly, and everything he touched, from the mundane to the miraculous, he transformed. I mean, it, it is incredible. And my fear for kids that are here, as well as parents, that we, in our indifference, in our distractedness, whatever it is, in our arrogance, that we would miss Christmas. Christmas is a time to search our hearts, right? In the flurry of activity that we've experienced in the last 30 days or longer, it's possible that you miss the meaning of Christmas. And you have to remember that the birth of Christ always leads to a rebirth, to a second birth. To reconcile us sinners to the Father, right? John 1, 9 to 13. If you miss Christmas... This morning, you will miss the gospel. You miss the gospel, man, you're in, a, you're in a world of hurt. And so we would encourage you to just examine yourself as leaders. We want you to just look at your heart in light of Christmas and the incarnation and what it means theologically for you. If he was not born, we're in a boatload of trouble. But he was born. The perfect man, the God man. Isaiah said, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Child is born, speaks to his humanity, son is given to his deity. He was the God man. He was the only one that could rescue us from our sins. He is Emmanuel, Matthew says. God with us. So we go through this what if scenario. And we kind of look at it, it would, we'd be in a real big hurt. Because times are going to get worse and worse, not better and better. Everything in the New Testament says it's going to get worse and worse and worse. But when Christ came, he changed so many things. Both by providing us grace. And then think of all the common grace that he gives to all people. Education. We just... We run off to school. We see little children being born all the time. They're going to go to school. It's just normal. You just don't even think, where did that come from? It came from Christ. His impact is massive. And my fear 
in 2018 Christmas is that for some reason you would miss it. And so that's the challenge. Don't miss Christmas. There are so many people who have missed the first Christmas and have repeated that sin year upon year, century upon century, till today, 2018. And I would encourage us as a people that we hold fast and fight for the true meaning of Christmas, that Christ died for our sins, that he was born the perfect God-man in humility, right? In humility, he was born to die for our sins. And that's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this particular Sunday. They're all good because of your incarnation, because of the cross, and because of your resurrection. But especially this Sunday is good. That we can give gifts to each other. We can love each other unconditionally. We can rejoice in the gospel. We celebrate the birth of Christ and its impact in the world. So many people miss Christmas. It's become a holiday. Not a divine moment in history. That changed everything. People don't even realize the calendar. How we keep time. Everything was changed when Christ came into existence as a man. And we thank you for that. It encourages us. It strengthens us. It emboldens us. That the things we do on a daily basis are rooted and grounded in the gospel itself. Thank you for our study. Lord, I pray that nobody would miss Christmas. From the youngest child here to the oldest. The real meaning of Christmas in 2018. In your name I pray. Amen.